Our plan was to not waste any time and get right on the free blast, the tempitch start to the Salate wall, our line of choice. We would nip hesitation in the bud and leave our rack and rope up on heart ledges where we're going to haul and bivy the following day. We arrived at the start of the route at the exact same time as another party. They were friendly as could be and attempting to pre-climb Freerider, a route that shares many pitches with the Salate. That day, everything went as planned and leaving our stash of gear on the heart ledges was an act of commitment. Welcome to episode 17 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we're finally getting back up on El Cap in the book, in the home stretch, and uh, very grateful for everyone who's listening and to go back through these times, especially the Yosemite times, and especially El Cap. It's just so surreal, especially because it was just a one-time thing for me being successful on it uh, after failing a few times, and Having not been there in a while, too, is just something very surreal, like maybe it happened to someone else, but I think I have the proof that it did happen to me, and it's it's pretty cool to relive. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. You can check these guys out at stickerart.com. Every sticker tells a story. They're based here in Durango, Colorado, and if you enter Dirtbag in as a coupon code at checkout, you'll get 20% off, so check them out. You can support this podcast in many ways, telling your friends, um, subscribing or writing reviews or following whatever uh, platform you're on. I know it's used to be just uh, subscribe and write a review on iTunes, but now iTunes is Apple Podcasts and they're not the number one um, platform out there. I think Spotify has a lot too. So whatever you're doing, if you engage with it, that's going to help us. All of the links to support us are in our show notes. Without further ado, for my dirt bags, for my climbers, and the people who want to be dirt bag climbers, let's get into episode 17 of the Dirt Bag State of Mind podcast. Sean and I ended up in Salt Lake City the week after Adam died for the outdoor retailer trade show. The very day Adam died in the avalanche, I left him a message to see if we could crash out of his house while we were there. Of course he would have said yes. He would have been more than proud too. We were there on business trying to promote my writing and making connections. We still stayed at his house. He was the first of us to buy his own house. There was an aura of sadness with his girlfriend and roommate both grieving just as we were. All throughout his house were his simple possessions, his bookshelf of paperbacks and guidebooks, his bikes, skis, boating gear, and climbing gear. A lone houseplant, a flower, was blooming. Adam was one of the goofiest people I'd ever known, with a lap that seemed to come up his sides and go all the way to the crinkles in his face. And I don't know how this one started, but he began carrying an obscure piece of climbing gear, a pink tricam, with him on every big outdoor excursion he would go on. It didn't matter if he would use it or not, even on a skiing trip, he would take it and snap a photo of it. That last day in Salt Lake, all walking outside of Adam's house with our heads hung low, Sean noticed something in the freshly fallen snow, the pink tricam. Somehow, it had ended up randomly in the sidewalk, and we retrieved it. Sean still has it to this day, tucked away in his room, a sentimental reminder of our friend that passed on to the next adventure. 
In Durango, when spring rolled around, I was finishing up my very first book, a collection of short stories. My confidence seemed to change then, like I was no longer a literary virgin. I had tangible proof that I was a writer and my work would finally be sold in a bookstore. I was also out of money. I'd liquidated my retirement funds and every other resource that I had. It was time to get a job. I applied for gigs at the college again, but didn't get hired. One day, I was eating at my favorite little burrito joint where I ate lunch almost every day because it was cheap, and I started up a conversation with one of the managers. I asked if they needed a dishwasher, and he said no, but they could use some other kitchen help. And just like that, I finally had a job in Durango. I hated it at first. Maybe it was my ego or the fact that they started me in the kitchen and almost everyone else was Mexican and spoke Spanish, and my Spanish sucks. When it comes down to it, I feel like I've let myself down with the Spanish language. I should know it by now. I've studied it in school. I've traveled to Mexico many times, yet I barely know enough to order a beer and a taco. It was madness in the kitchen that summer. The restaurant was one of the busiest in Durango, and I was learning their system. To top it off, I just wanted to wash dishes, and they were having me prep food. Plus, the dishwasher hated me for some reason. I thought that was quite the karmic coincidence, considering I'd paid my dues a thousand times over as a dishwasher. One day I was about to confront him when I learned a valuable piece of information. The dishwasher had gone to jail for five years for stabbing someone. The owner, who was a nice and generous man, was giving him another chance at freedom. Once I learned he'd stabbed someone, I decided against the confrontation with him. Just a few months later, he was back in jail anyways. After paying my dues in the restaurant and the kitchen, I was moved up to the front of the house. I'd always been a dishwasher, but it was nice to try something new. It was so humbling after my days in higher education. I was back to the grind in a very blue-collar way. The owner and the manager all knew about my writing aspirations, and they thought it was super cool I was trying to make it as a writer. When they needed a new manager, they asked me, and I promptly said no, even though it entitled me to a raise as well. A few months later, they asked me again. I told them I would do it if I could have as much time off to travel and climb as I wanted, and they agreed. When I asked for a week and a half off to go back to Yosemite, no one even flinched. I was the only climber there, and they thought it was inspiring that I wanted to try to climb El Capitan. I bought a plane ticket, and just like that, I was off again to Yosemite. The trip started in Las Vegas. Dave was there with his girlfriend, Brittany, and was doing some climbing to prepare for a guiding exam later in the month. I had a knot in my stomach. I had to face my greatest fear, El Capitan, and there was no turning back. We climbed in the extreme heat of Vegas. It made me feel woozy and lightheaded. That night we stayed in Camp Ganistan, a shitty little Bureau of Land Management campsite outside of Red Rocks. The next morning, we drove through the desert to Yosemite. Again, we stayed with Scott. That night I slept restlessly and awoke in fear. John Long once wrote that anyone who says they slept well or at all before that first big climb is either crazy or a liar. And I think he's right. Our plan was to not waste any time and get right on the free blast, the 10 pitch start to the Salathe wall, our line of choice. We would nip hesitation in the bud and leave our rack and rope on the heart ledges where we would haul to and bivy the following day. We arrived at the start of the route at the same exact time as another party. They were as friendly as could be in attempting to free climb the free rider. That day, everything went as planned and leaving our stash of gear in the heart ledges was an act of commitment. We spent a day hauling the pig up to heart ledges, a relatively straightforward haul and everything went fine. 
We arrived to find four cans of Pabst Blue Ribbon at the ledge where we would spend the night. They looked unpleasant, aluminum cans of beer baking in the sun. When we arrived at that ledge, I had a feeling of being exactly where I wanted to be in my life. So much had been leading up to this moment, years of dreams and failures. The person who knows endurance can know success. Dave and I basked at this ledge for a while, getting our sleeping situation arranged and hooting and hollering on life. Then we fixed a pitch and talked with some Austrian climbers who wanted to pass us. A leader that had muscles that probably ripped all of his shirts out, so he was wearing a tank top with all the sides ripped. His companions seemed to have titles, the second and their photographer. He must have been some famous climber back home. The leader climbed with focus and ease while his buddies seemed to be on edge, especially the photographer. They inquired about the cans of PBR. Immediately, we saw their future value. And we agreed to let them have two cans, and we would take the other two. Democracy with foreigners. On the ledge that night, I felt at home and at ease. We were on the rock of our dreams, and Dave was the perfect partner. He was better at figuring out the logistics of hauling and jugging. Plus, he was the yin to my yang, and we struck a deal. I would lead the infamous hollow flake, and he would lead the notoriously wet sewer pitch. I slept well, but once we began climbing for the day, there was an intense dread running through my entire being. It was hollow flake. Supposedly, it was a solid 5-9 off with that didn't have much gear. One guy told me that after leading it, he was unable to move for the rest of the day. He just collapsed at the belay and didn't have the desire to climb any higher. Others just looked at me as I was about to go through a rite of passage, which I was. The knot in my stomach grew tighter. Finally, after a couple straightforward pitches, it was the moment of truth. I climbed up to a pendulum, lowered out, and swung over to the off with. I fiddled with some gear, but to no avail. The crack was too wide. I called down to Dave at the belay. Hey, can you send up that big bro? To which he yelled back, we didn't bring the big bro. So I sunk into the crack with a thousand feet of granite below me, perform the off-with techniques I'd learned over the years. I've always liked off-withs in that masochistic, fucked-up kind of way, but most of my experience was at Indian Creek. Well-protected off-withs they were, and I could always hang on gear if needed. Here, I was climbing higher and higher above the void, with my last piece of protection in the void as well, a good 30 feet down and 10 feet over to the right. If I were to fall, it would be a monster. For the next 70 feet, I climbed through a lifetime of climbing fear, with no gear other than a tipped-out number 6 Camelot. At one point, I thought I was facing the wrong way and did that ridiculous shuffle, switching sides in the middle of the pitch, which is like wrestling a wet alligator. And if you let him go, your climbing career could be over, then and there. I was terrified. Then I realized I had to get this thing done. The climb, the dream, could not be sustained if we were unsuccessful on this pitch. I've never dug my arms so deep into an off-with, and I prayed to the gods for passage. My heels and toes were equally pressed as firmly into the crack. After a while, I was completely in the moment, with my body and muscles giving their best efforts. When I finally arrived at the belay, an ocean of relief washed over me. Adrenaline covered my every cell. I whooped, off belay, to Dave, and fixed the line for him. It was more off with that day, but it was better protected, so it was not as etched into my memory. Dave took blocks of pitches that led us into the night, and we arrived just below the El Cap Spire to a nice ledge with plenty of sleeping room. 
The friendly guys attempting the free rider were there and kindly offered us the best sleeping spots. They had a portal ledge, and we had nice spots to sleep. It was a long and tiring day, and arriving to such a welcoming spot was much needed. We exchanged pleasantries, and we were equally excited for each other. Their attempt at free climbing was successful thus far, and we were more than halfway up the captain. We didn't speak of the horizontal world below. No one resorted to the, so what do you do question. We were just brothers of the vertical and shared food, drink, and smoke. They were off early in the morning, and we sat around lazily and drank coffee. Now this is why I like Dave. He'll get business done when it's time, but he recognizes how equally important it is to take stock of your surroundings. It's not every day the towering pine trees below seem like small bushes in the garden of life. It's equally as rare for me to feel free and unchained on a big wall. We just barely had everything we needed. A little water, some food, and coffee that fueled the high of the morning. It didn't matter how much money was in our bank accounts or what jobs we had or where we came from or where we were going. It was the reunion with the original spirit of rock climbing I love so much. Plus, we recognized that this might be a one-time thing. Many climbers make countless trips up El Cap, but we knew this might be the only time we would ever be up there. We climbed again after an extended hour of glorious coffee drinking. Straightforward pitches led to the dreaded sewer pitch, described in the guidebook as the worst pitch of the route. It was supposed to always be wet and seeping, and no one I'd ever talked to enjoyed the pitch. Some described shivering while leading it and then waiting an eternity at the belay until the hall bag arrived with warm clothes. I was glad Dave was going to lead it. Our good fortune continued when we arrived to find the sewer was bone dry. That luck did not carry on to our bivy. We stayed at the block, a terribly sloping bivy owned by fire ants that kept biting us. Some ledges are made for sleeping and some are made for just making it through the night. We laughed at the situation and had a restless night of sleep. The motivation that kept us positive, we would stand on top of El Capitan the next day. Our free climbing friends passed us early in the morning and of course were overly polite. We were blessed with their company. When you're doing a trade route in El Cap in the prime season, you're bound to share the wall with some others and they can shape your experience. They were heading to 512 terrain at six in the morning as the sun was barely coming up. We drank coffee, ate oatmeal, and pooped. When we gained higher terrain, we found that our friends were defeated. They had managed a free ascent to that point, 20 some pitches up, but kept falling on one move in a dihedral. They decided to rappel back down, which in my mind was a crazy thought. All I wanted to do was go up. Down they went with their air of failure. I don't know if this is for me, one of the climbers said. I knew the feeling. Then things started to get real steep. A traversing pitch under a roof brought us to the headwall. I got twisted around in the ropes with more than 2,000 feet of air below me. I felt sick to my stomach. That's climbing for you. One moment it's ecstasy and you're on the mountain of your dreams and the next moment you feel like you're going to vomit on the mountain of your dreams. I led the headwall, a perfect scene that took textbook cam placements. We arrived at Long Ledge, a narrow ledge you could sleep on with the massive void below. The exposure and steepness were mind-blowing. It's one of those things you just have to experience, even if it's just once in your lifetime. It was there, and then it was gone, but it's always there. Off Long Ledge, there was one more challenging pitch, a run-out above a small piece of gear. As I traversed out and stared up at the pitch, I noticed a fixed piece of gear. Upon closer inspection, 
It was a pink tricam. I was awash in a spiritual feeling, like Adam was watching over us and he was proud. I yelled up to the sky, to Adam, climbing on a big wall will make you believe that random things like this are indeed signs. I rested at a perch for a minute and took it all in. I realized I was perfectly at ease, comfortable, relaxed. All I had to do was dance from hold to hold. I switched out my approach shoes for climbing shoes and delicately moved up the wall. Seldomly in my life have I felt that calm on a run out, and I'd surely never been that exposed. A couple more straightforward pitches led us to the top. For me, summits are usually anticlimactic. This one was different. The sky around us started to fade into an intense orange and red display of wonder. With the difficulty over, as I stood on the summit, I yelled and whooped for joy. I thought of everyone that was close to me and said a prayer of gratitude. It was the greatest climb of my life, and yet in the climbing world, it was so simple, so routine. When Dave found a couple extra packages of tuna, I was convinced that we'd already eaten them. We danced and screamed. I don't even like tuna. But when you take things away and enter the vertical world, a new appreciation is gained for the simple things in life. I knew that was part of the reason I'd stuck with this climbing thing, and all my years of toil had paid off. This was much a moment of clarity as it was a climbing accomplishment. Then, the magic wore off. We had a restless night sleeping on the summit. We awoke and had just enough water to either make coffee or oatmeal. We went with coffee. On the final descent, we had the most dangerous moment of our adventure. Dave started to lose his balance on a fourth-class slab while carrying the hall bag, which still was surprisingly heavy considering we'd eaten all the food, drank all the water. He made some terrifying noises, and I'd never seen him that spooked. Fortunately, he kept it together and did not fall. When we arrived back to Scott's, the magic had returned. We had ate a pound of bacon and drank a beer. We ate pretty much everything we saw for the next couple days. It was the time of the annual Yosemite facelift cleanup, and we partied with the climbing community that night. The next day, we learned about wall hands when our hands swelled up from days of jamming and other abuse. Eventually, we made our way to El Cap Meta. It was surreal and a confirmation that sometimes it's more difficult to look at the captain and wonder if it's possible for you than it actually is to climb it. Our high lasted for days. Dave and I were drunk on our success and camaraderie. Even when we arrived back in Vegas, we still had that crazy, awesome feeling. In the grand scheme of things, we'd achieved nothing. The standards in the climbing world are so high, the athleticism so intense, that a climb like this one we did is quite routine. We did it all for the right reasons, though, and it was hard. For us. That's what matters in climbing. The style, the motivation, the friendship, the camaraderie, and above all, the feeling, the place it brings you to, internally and externally. This was years ago, and I wish I could say I've climbed El Capitan many times since then. But the truth is that I haven't touched it in those years that have passed. It's a perfect memory. And I haven't purposely avoided climbing on El Cap to protect a memory. It's just the way life has gone. I've spent much more time in the mellow Colorado Plateau desert, finding the unclimbed lines, basking in the transcendence that that place has to offer, realizing the golden age of American climbing is not over. It may be there. It has just begun.
All right, that is episode 17 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mehal. And just uh, a reference, Sean, my, my buddy Sean, um, was referenced there. And I did, I think it was episode four. It was episode four. Um, the first, and in, in so far for this first season, the only um, interview we've aired with the character from the book. We had planned to do more, but COVID uh, kind of made that a little more difficult. But if you want to learn more about Sean, check out that episode. And I really can't say how much uh, he supported me in this journey to create the climbing zine and have it be my life's work too. You know, he he sat with me in a lot of meetings and I knew if Adam was still around too, he would have uh, supported me in every way he could too. Um, so big shout out to both of those guys. Um, and I was also thinking about the hollow flake pitch on the Salathe and I think with the new um, cams being mainstream, I think a Valley Giant would have worked before. But before when the biggest piece was the six that most people had, you just kind of had to run it out. And that's how it went down for years, I guess, since I think Royal Robbins might have been the first person to lead that pitch. Um, and now I think with those new BD seven and eights, um, I just ordered one myself. Uh, I think it's going to be like a game changer. This isn't like a plug for them. It's just like, oh, wow, someone else will lead that pitch and be like, Luke was so terrified in the book on that. And then I just plugged these sevens and eights and, and went up it. So we don't quote me on that, but I think those pieces would work in that thing. So that rite of passage may be, may be over for better or worse, but it was, uh, um, I felt proud in that moment that I got to the top of that pitch. But these days as I get older and don't want to run shit out, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if I could do it. Music in this episode was from Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. You can support this podcast and the climbing zine by checking out the links in our show notes or going to the link in our bio and our Instagram page. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I'm Luke Mihal coming at you from Durango, Colorado.